Hello, I'm John Tickle. I hope that you're all okay and managing during this difficult and highly unusual time. This podcast, Power to the People, which I present, was recorded before the lockdown took effect in the UK. Obviously for all of us, the world has been turned upside down in the space of just a few weeks. It's given us time to reflect upon how we act in many ways, not least the effect of our actions on the environment. One result of the impact has been the dramatic drop in pollution levels. One study taken since the lockdown has suggested that as many as 45% of people have considered switching to electric vehicles as a result of the improvement in air quality. So I think you'll find that my journey to discover whether now is the time to be switching to an EV is more relevant than ever. I hope you enjoy the programme and it gives food for thought. Let's get this show on the road. I'm very excited today. I'm here in the headquarters of Centrica in Windsor in Berkshire and I'm going to have a go in an electric car for the first time. So I'm here in reception and about to pick up the keys. Hi there. Hello. Have you got any keys for me? Yes, can I take your name? Yep, John Tickle. Okay, there you go. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, I'm John Tickle, and in this first podcast from Centrica, Power to the People on the Road, I'm going on a journey to find out how far we've come down the road of electric cars and where the route is taking us. Are we really on the road to an energy efficient future? I want to understand more about electric vehicles, or EVs as they're called. Are they really more environmentally friendly? Do they perform like the cars I'm used to driving? In what way do they interconnect with other energy-saving devices? And are we really ready if lots of people, me included, decided to switch from petrol to electric? So to get things going, I'm taking a test drive. Great, now I've got the keys, I need to go and find the car and meet an expert in electric vehicles from Centrica. Hi, my name's Carl Bayliss, nice to meet you. Great, and what do you do here at Centrica Cell? Well, for Centrica, I'm the Vice President of Mobility and Home Energy Management. Cool, lovely to meet you. Yeah. So, this is, this is a Golf. It's like any other internal combustion engine car you might find here in the car park in Centrica Estates. But where you would typically fill it with gasoline or with diesel would be a nice little port for you to plug in the charger. This is my moment. I really want to get behind the wheel now. Shall we go for it? Yeah, let's go for it. And I think you'll really see the difference between an electric vehicle and an internal combustion engine vehicle. So this is my first experience of driving uh, an electric vehicle and I've got to be honest, in some ways it's absolutely familiar. It's an automatic car, I've got the same steering wheel in front of me, the same dials and, and configuration of all that and yet in some ways it's completely different. The, there's no noise from an engine and it doesn't matter what I do with my right foot, that noise doesn't change. There's no noise that signifies that I'm accelerating really hard or braking really hard, uh, for instance. Um, but there is a definite difference underneath the right foot. It is really, really responsive. It's a really exciting thing to drive. I'm having to be quite careful not to be too leery about it because I think it would be quite easy to go really quite fast in this thing. It's obviously got uh, bags of potential. And yet I feel wonderfully virtuous. 
I know that I'm not pushing any carbon dioxide molecules out of the exhaust pipe. And that feels really good. It, it, I, I feel connected. I feel an emotional connection with this, this car. It feels like something I want to drive in the future. Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear, John. I mean, one of the things about driving an electric vehicle is that feel-good factor. And I think that uh, those who, who start with electric vehicles, they they never go back to internal combustion engine. You, they don't want to go back to the, the petrol stations. They feel good about driving from point A to point B. And I, I think this is that really is the, the start of things to come. We'll get very comfortable with electric vehicles. This is starting to feel like the start of things to come for me too. But if I'm going to buy one of these EVs, I need to understand more about whether these cars really are as good as they seem, not only on the road, but also for the environment. So, Carl, I will leave you for now, but see you later. Cheers. Well, thanks, John, and enjoy the rest of the day in the car. The next stop in my journey is to the spires of Oxford University to get the expert academic view. I'm here at the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford to meet James Dixon. Hi, James. Hi, John. Why don't you start by telling us who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I am a postdoctoral researcher here in the field of energy and transport systems modelling. And what I'm doing is modelling the UK vehicle fleet out to 2050 to assess different options we have for the decarbonisation of the transport sector. How do you think that the way we use energy is going to have to shift over the next couple of decades? Yeah, so fundamentally, the way in which we use energy is going to have to shift quite rapidly and quite remarkably in order to meet net zero commitments by the year 2050. And taking carbon dioxide out of the energy system itself isn't that much of a challenge you know we've put people on the moon and it's quite easy to imagine some kind of zero carbon dystopia that isn't really worth living in so the challenge that falls to all of those people that work in the field is to create this net zero energy landscape between the three sectors which are normally described as electricity heat and transport in a way that takes everyone with it and in a way that doesn't impact on anyone's quality of life or indeed our kind of wider economy i'm trying to assess when is the right time to jump should I go early and buy an electric vehicle now? Is it the right time? Or should I wait until there are more charging stations in, in the UK? I'm a bit worried about running out of, of battery charge when I'm on a long journey. Am I right to be fearful about that? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question to ask. Um, it's certainly a feeling that is echoed amongst lots of people. Range anxiety, as it's called, is, is usually cited as the main reason why people don't want to make the jump from petrol car to electric car. Um, for one fact, as a kind of stone cold hard fact, there are around about 7,000 petrol stations in the UK. There are just shy of 20,000 electric vehicle charge points. So already there are a widespread amount of charging points. In terms of knowing where they are, you were to find a petrol station, you'd probably open up Google Maps on your phone or something. It's very similar nowadays with charge points. There are apps such as ZapMap, um, which basically uses Google Maps API to, to tell you where those charge points are, and then they would allow the reporting of any kind of maintenance issues or anything otherwise that would prevent you getting charged. So I think range anxiety is slowly being turned into range confidence. Um, I guess as an aside, um, you know, we talk about running out of energy, running out of charge. Uh, I just found out that 800,000 people every year run out of fuel on the roads. Um, so this is before they've even moved, made the transition to a battery electric vehicle. So it sounds like there's quite a lot of charging stations in the UK. I hadn't really realised that. How are we doing compared to other countries around the world? The UK is actually towards the most um, advanced within the electric vehicle uptake. Um, so according to the International Energy Agency, uh, the top 
EV car market in the world is Norway. So roughly 58% of their new cars this year were electric. What they have, but we don't, is a high taxation across all cars. So what they've basically done is dropped the taxation on electric vehicles. So it means that a Tesla Model S is now the same price as a Golf. So people buy the Tesla. We don't have that luxury here because we don't have high taxation on cars. Um, the only other country that is higher than us in terms of EV uptake of new vehicles is Germany. And then the UK is a third very close. How do you think I'm going to have to change as a person? Should electric vehicles be as important to me in my life as my old-fashioned internal combustion engine car is at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's a really good, good point to make. I think uh, all the work that we're doing here points to the fact that technology substitution on its own, such as the bringing in of electric vehicles in favour of petrol cars is not going to be enough to decarbonize the entire transport system. We also need lifestyle change, but also kind of wider system change. Um, and for you and I and all of us as individuals, this can't come down to just shelling out more money for the for the bus service that only runs once a day or something. It has to be really big, kind of top-down change, radical change on how our transport system works, in my view. Um, so an electric vehicle, I think, will sit differently alongside you as someone who lives in an urban environment than your old internal combustion engine car has i mean but i guess these paradigms are already been reflected i guess you know however long ago london introduced the congestion charge generally cars have been demoted in places like london over favor of things like cycling walking and public transport it was really interesting hearing james dixon talk there about the necessity for radical and top-down change we're all finding our place in this new environment. And relevant to that point, I've been listening to three other punters who, like me, have been worrying about their reliance on a combustion engine. Rebecca, Jay and Roz all recently considered buying an EV, but in the end went for a compromise, a hybrid, part reliant on petrol and part on batteries. Let's find out why. First of all, Rebecca describes what led her to move away from a full petrol car. So I decided to buy a hybrid because I was feeling more and more guilty about driving a real petrol guzzler of a car. And it seemed like a really good moment to um, buy a car that was environmentally much more friendly. Um, and I must say, I do feel very virtuous and I do really like the fact that I'm using a car that doesn't use petrol um, all the time. Um, I couldn't afford a full electric one. Also, I was concerned that perhaps it wouldn't be possible to charge it whenever I needed to, and that would be a, actually a hassle. I was very surprised to, to hear the news that hybrids weren't going to be made in 15 years. I thought I was, like, cutting edge, and already I feel like I'm being superseded. Next, Jay explains what he likes about his hybrid and why he didn't feel ready for an EV. I've owned a hybrid car for about eight months. I feel a bit more virtuous. The government rewards me, doesn't charge me a road tax. And my children look at me and I think perhaps Dad's taking climate change more seriously than he might. I didn't buy another terrible gas guzzler. I did think about buying an EV, but then I thought, where would I charge it? And I live in a terraced house and I didn't feel like installing a charger and then I heard other people's experiences of running out of charge or arriving at a carefully planned charge point only to discover it was out of order. And Ros fills us in on what she sees as the positive and negative things about her hybrid. The plus points are that you are not contributing towards the city centre smog and disgusting air. It's very cheap to charge up, it doesn't cost much so that all that's great. 
And when we go around town and get home and I say, did we use any emissions? You know, did we have any? And, and no, we, we use none. And it is a nice feeling. I feel quite virtuous. Charging has been a pain. There is not the infrastructure for it. We've discovered that to our great irritation. We live in a right-on neighbourhood where there's a charger up the road and it doesn't work. It's just, it's been out of order for months. The infrastructure has to be totally changed. I mean, everywhere. They need to be on street charging points in every residential road. They really need to get their skates on. Well, there's a lot there that I can identify with. I share some of their ambivalence about going the whole hog and buying an EV right now. But there's also my concern that hybrids are going to be superseded pretty soon. So what's the right thing to do? I'm going to talk to Dr. Charlotte Duke. She leads the behavioural economics team at a specialist consultancy called London Economics. I want her to help me understand how we humans decide what our next step should be, what it will take for people to commit to electric vehicles, and, excuse the pun, what drives us to make decisions. She's already heard what Rebecca Jay and Roz had to say. I can't wait to listen to her observations. Hi, are you Dr Duke? Hi, Dr John, good to see you. Lovely to see you. So, Charlotte, you've heard from Jay, Rebecca and Roz about why they've hesitated to go fully EV and why they've bought hybrids uh, so far. What did you find interesting about the insights that we learned from those interviews? Yeah, I found the three interviews very interesting and there were four points that were consistent through the interviews. The first two points that I'll mention are positive behavioural levers that can encourage people to have confidence in purchasing electric vehicles. The second two points are sort of frictions or bottlenecks that inhibit people from having the confidence to buy electric vehicles. So if you think about Jay, Rebecca and Roz, all of them used the word virtuous. And they were very much aware of, they were moving away from the old combustion engine. They also recognised the benefits that they were doing for their local air quality. Then also the impacts they were having more broadly in terms of our requirement to reduce our carbon footprint. They also touched on money savings when they were using the vehicle. And again, pride in seeing that actually they they were reporting their bills were going down because it was cheaper to charge as opposed to fuel the vehicle. So these are two positive levers that behavioural scientists or behavioural specialists like myself would actually focus on and use nudges to encourage people to have more confidence. The second two points then was anxiety, concern, hassle of charging, the fear of uncertainty, of getting stranded. And then also a couple of them uh, mentioned that they'd heard stories of people being stranded on the motorway. And so again, if we hear stories about other people's negative experience, we become negative and concerned ourselves. And then the other point, which I think it was Rebecca mentioned, the upfront cost of purchasing an electric vehicle compared to a hybrid or compared to the traditional combustion engine. Now, we as human beings, we suffer from this thing called present bias. It hurts us to make a big outlay today. We put a lot of weight on that big outlay. and We don't put enough weight on the um, cost savings in the future 
from using the electric vehicle. So that's present bias, which is really creating, again, a bottleneck or a friction in us choosing to purchase electric vehicles. One thing that's interesting for me out of that insight is that the that the negatives, the things that are holding these people back, are all personal, where some of the positives can either be it's good for society or it's good for me. Which, which one of those two sides of the positive drivers should we be focusing on if we want more people to go EV? I think um, people are aware of the need to have this sort of social benefit, but if you really want people to change, target the private benefit. And that is the cost savings to the individual. So let's say if you purchase a combustion engine, you would lose out on £200 savings. See, I'm framing it as a, as a loss. I'm playing on the loss aversion of a human. Whereas if you say with electric vehicle, you will make £200 savings, we as humans, that gain is given less weight than the loss frame. So frame it as you're going to be losing out if you purchase a combustion engine. Can we also talk about how we mitigate the negatives that certain people feel are associated with EVs, like being stranded, running out of charge, not being able to find a charging point? How do we go about persuading people that there are solutions to these problems? So we can reduce this anxiety and uncertainty, which a behavioural specialist calls ambiguity aversion, we don't like situations where we have uncertainty. If people are saying, oh, I have run out of energy, or I feel I might run out of energy, this snowballs into a perception that you will. So maybe as people become more familiar with electric vehicles, and as more people start consuming and using electric vehicles, that social norm is going to decrease. The norm is, no problem. I was on the M6. I picked up some takeaway, went to Marks and Spencer's and charged the car. Completely normal. Well, the next person I'm going to talk to on my journey will hopefully help us mitigate the negatives and decrease uncertainty. Sendrika has invested in a startup in Israel called Drives. It provides a smart cloud-based platform which spans everything from EV charging operations, energy management, to self-service driver tools. It sounds like it's going to be a big help navigating any potential problems. So right now I'm going to contact Ronnie DeVere, who is their Director of Marketing on my phone here in the car. It's okay, I am stationary. Hello Ronnie. Hi John. Great to be connected with you all the way from Israel to Britain. Great to talk to you too, Ronnie. As I understand it, what you do with your smart platform is provide, if you like, the brains with your smart algorithms. And in this way, you enable service providers, charge point operators to simplify our lives. Is that right? Yes, you are absolutely right. So you'll be using a mobile app uh, that was provided to you by your service provider. Okay. And this app will have all the information you need about charger's uh, availability, about your payment methods, about your billing history. So drivers can basically check if chargers near them are working properly and plan their route and navigate to the nearest available charger. So do you do all this with your clever algorithm? Yes, we use algorithms uh, which optimize energy consumption, which uh, manage demand response in a way that is optimal and ensure drivers can charge their EVs uh, when they need it. 
And I understand your algorithms can ensure that the infrastructure is working too. Yes, automated self-healing algorithms remotely address up to 80% of operational problems related to EV chargers. Ronnie, could you please explain about the vehicle-to-grid scenario? I understand our EVs will be giving power back to the grid. Uh, V2G vehicle-to-grid basically enables a two-way energy exchange flow between the vehicle and the grid. Energy stored in an EV can be fed back to the grid at times of peak demand and ultimately overcome the strain. And this uh, turns EV drivers into into what we call prosumers, someone who is both a consumer of the grid and a provider of energy, um, thus enabling them to generate additional revenues and reduce the costs of charging when using an EV. So that's how energy management and V2G technologies um, are two essential components of the e-mobility, electric mobility future, as with up to 40 million EV chargers uh, forecasted worldwide by 2030, the grid capacity issue becomes more apparent. Um, and without smart charging and vehicle to grid, uh, grids will not be able to cope with this added pressure. That's so interesting, Ronnie. 40 million chargers by 2030. That really is quite something. So we EV drivers, note I'm including myself in that now, so I'm moving in the right direction, will become prosumers. I like that term, I'm going to remember it. Thanks so much for your time today, Ronnie. I've learned a lot. Thank you, John, for having me. Have a great day. Ronnie Devere from Drives touched on one of the potential challenges. If everyone, me included, adopts EVs, we will need to ensure that there's enough affordable energy to go around. And this is tied into the way that energy is produced, stored and used. So I need to find out more about that and the apparent connection between a boiler and an EV. I'm here with Pete Armstrong, the CEO of Mixergy, which is a company which specialises in hot water boilers and is a spin-off from Oxford University. Hello, nice to meet you, John. Hi, Pete. Lovely to see you. What does Mixergy do? How can you help with our energy solutions for the future? Right. Well, so what Mixergy does is we design software and sensors, for the most part, that are integrated within domestic hot water tanks. And these allow hot water tanks to operate in a way which means that they can just heat the amount of hot water that's needed. So a regular tank is like a giant kettle. It heats all or nothing, irrespective of whether you know you just need to wash your hands or go for a bath. The whole thing gets heated up. So it's very wasteful. It wastes the equivalent of about 40 cups of tea a day in standing heat losses. So by only heating what you need, you can immediately reduce the heat losses by more than half, but at the same time, it's much quicker at getting to useful temperature and also you create room for renewables. So by not heating the whole tank, you're able to create headroom for renewable power as and when it becomes available on the electricity network to avoid what is otherwise wasted renewable energy. So sometimes wind farm operators are paid considerable amounts of money to to curtail their outputs. And there's also instances where we can't install any more solar panels because the distribution network voltage, for instance, goes too high. And by putting in tanks that can turn on when that happens, you can manage those local problems, but also nationally absorb large surpluses of of wind 
uh, that's been, for the most part, produced uh, offshore in the northwest of Scotland, for instance. Do you see a world in which the smart hot water system from Mixergy is going to persuade me to amend my behaviour? Yeah, I mean, like Hal in Space Odyssey, I think you'll in time be very very respectful and fearful almost of our hot water tank and it will tell you when you can have it. No, it, actually the reverse. We, we want the hot water tank to really be the slave to the householder. It, we don't want to be imposing behavioral changes on people. It's very difficult to get people to align their behavior with what's great for the energy system. So if you have a, lots of tanks in a fleet, you can aggregate everyone's behavior in such a way that statistically it doesn't really matter. You've actually got a lot of headroom to do great things for the energy system without having to make demands on people's individual behavior. I'm particularly interested in battery storage and the idea that very soon if I get an electric vehicle, I'm going to be driving a, a massive battery on wheels. Do you see the hot water tank and the electric vehicle interacting with each other in the future? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And uh, as far as batteries are concerned, there's lots of ways in which a battery will be playing into the energy system. So to, we've seen things like the Zappi charger, uh, which is a smart electric vehicle car charger that sits in someone's drive. They're trialing these sorts of technologies. Just from our perspective, we see a world where the, the Mixi tank can be working with the EV, but more likely a second life EV battery in the home. So when an uh, electric vehicle has got to a point where the battery's range effectively has diminished by, I think, about 10% or so, that's when it's considered to have got to the end of its first life, and that is it uses the battery for driving the vehicle. And so there are a number of companies where they're saying, OK, well, let's take that battery out of the vehicle and repurpose it for a stationary grid storage application. And we're doing that already, actually, with Centrica, who uh, they have some Sonnen batteries down in Cornwall, for instance. And so there's a bit of arbitrage going on through uh, Centrica Business Solutions, a big software package that discerns sort of on a macro level, where do they want their grid services to come from? There's a very much an interesting interaction between tanks and batteries that we see right now, and we only see them developing further in the future. So car batteries and home energy can have a reciprocal relationship. To see how this works in practice, I'm off now to visit a real-life home battery called a Sonning that is being trialled by Amanda Barker in Surrey. Hello. Hello, are you Amanda? I am. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Now, I'm very excited to be here. I understand that you've got a modern Powerwall battery. Is that true? Yeah, certainly. It's in the garage. Fantastic. Can we go and have a look? Yes. Well, here we are in the garage, and I've got to say, this is an impressive setup. I don't know what a lot of it does, but it looks like we've got things that look like a number of different circuit boards. There's a, a meter on the wall, which has some labels on it, which say PV, presumably that's photovoltaic meter, supply meter, and battery meter. And that last dial must have something to do with this quite large, but quite sexy looking um, battery that's on the wall. So Amanda, uh, you must know more about this than me. What, what am I looking at here? 
So the big white unit here is actually the battery. So yeah, it is quite attractive. And actually in Germany, they put them in people's homes, but in the UK, we have them behind firewalls. Um, so yeah, he's quite, he's quite pretty. He's got a name, sits in the garage. The meters that you've got here is like you said. So it's taking the PV supply in to charge the battery. It then also understands where we're using the supply and then it understands what's being kicked out of the battery. So all of this gubbins here, to me, just gets surfaced in an app. So we don't really need to come in and look at any of this stuff so long as we've got nice green lights um, and Sonnen can actually remote connect in themselves. So all of the support is all remote too. So apart from the installation, that's it. We haven't really had nice men in blue vans crawling around since the installation day. And Sonnen are the battery providers, aren't they? They are the battery providers, but we're providing the service through British Gas. In general terms, can you explain to me what's happening? What's the relationship between your solar power cells and, and the battery and the rest of your house? So the tech that we've actually got that's part of the home energy management solution provided by Centrica takes the power from the PV panels it will automatically be used within the house as and when we, you know, if you turn on the washing machine or the kettle, if there's enough power being generated, it will automatically source that. So what the app then does, it says when we're not using it, feed it into the battery. And then when it says, well, actually, before you use the supply, which is why we have the supply meter on there as well, what you actually want to do is now draw from the battery. So it's the brains behind it that then says, well, actually, it's the most efficient time of day for you to now use what's coming out of your battery. So when we get the new tariffs that come in, then obviously that will then help tile all of this stuff together to say we'll actually take from my battery eventually even you know to next door when they want to turn their kettle on when we've got the, the future grids. This sounds very encouraging one of the worries I've, I've had is that all of this is going to be very complicated but it sounds like there's an app with some kind of intelligence behind it that's going to sort all that out for me and I just have to go about my normal life. The system learns itself, and that's where all of the AI machine learning then comes in that sits behind the data. So over the course of winter, it's learnt, and obviously our patterns will now change as we go into the summer. Our electricity usage will drop significantly, so it's going to have to relearn. But it does that, and you can see it and watch it and monitor it um, on the app. OK, that sounds good. Could you show me this app, please? So here's the app. Basically, it's really easy. You can see there's, there's three um, areas on it. So there's the battery that's here on the left. So that says at the moment that it's actually discharging into the house. The PV panels on the top, which actually show what's coming into the house. Then the other bit is the supply. So there's the red and the green little circles which run around into the house, which then tell you whether you're using from the battery or whether you're using from PV or the supply. And it actually counts and tells you the wattage. So you can see if we turn the kettle on, then you'd actually see the house want more um, energy supply and then this will tell you whether it's coming from the grid and we're paying for it or if it's coming from the battery. Obviously at this time of day the PV panels aren't generating as much but on a hot sunny day you'd see that there's a huge amount coming in from the PV. Now I understand that you haven't got an electric vehicle just yet. Is all of this kit going to be able to work with an electric vehicle charging station? Yeah, so I see this as the, the first step in the journey to having that overall home energy management system. Obviously, when we built the house, we put the PV in. Um, that was step one. Batteries were always on the agenda anyway, especially as the feed-in tariffs then start to change. Um, and by getting this bit in and allowing us to understand then what our energy usage is, the next, next natural step is to actually go down the EV route as well. Well, I think I'm nearing a decision as to whether I will commit to buying an electric vehicle. Centrica's Carl Bayliss is hopping back in the car with me for the final stage of my journey. He's not only a passionate advocate of EVs, but also an owner himself. I need to talk to him. 
how much has having an electric car impacted on your life? Have you have you had to form a strategy about knowing where your charging stations are and organising your life around the car? That's a good question. I I think what it really did for us was um, really opened our eyes to the whole decarbonisation story. Uh, we started talking different languages between my wife and I around kilowatts and, and how much range we had and whether the car really needed charging tonight or we could leave it until tomorrow. We got to know our daily commutes and our local patterns a little better than I think if we'd just been driving petrol or diesel cars around. So we realised, you know, when we go to visit the in-laws, and this is a famous story for, for, for many people who say, I've got in-laws who live a, a long way away, um, we do. And uh, we had to then tactically take the electric vehicle to go and visit. Um, whether we were choosing that we would just about make it on the range of the vehicle, or we would try and stop somewhere just for a quick um, cup of coffee, um, a bio break quite often happens. And I think, uh, you know, most of the, uh, the independent organizations, the AA, the RAC, will recommend not driving more than an hour and a half, two hours without a break, just for safety reasons. So you're typically going to do that anyway, whether you want to or not. So it didn't really change any of our habits or lifestyles. It just made us a little bit more aware around what was our consumption and how, how can we decarbonize uh, our mobility solutions with using an electric vehicle. And it's been a very easy transition. Now, I can't avoid the pun. You've obviously got your finger on the pulse of technology developments in this field. How do you see technology evolving over the next few years? Well, I think technology will evolve as much as uh, people's behaviours will change as well. I think we, we know now, or we see now in lots of data that people aren't owning vehicles for as long as or owning them outright as they used to do, where you'd put £30,000 onto a salesman's table and walk away with a car. Now people are financing, now people are leasing, less people are owning cars outright and now we've seen the rise of car sharing um, opportunities with applications and businesses that offer you an alternative mode of transportation. So that behavioural change is happening. Technology is starting to meet our expectations. So there is a magic number that many car manufacturers over the years have thought that something around 200 and 250 miles of range is where the sweet spot is to overcome range anxiety. Some have suggested 300. But now the, the, the cost of uh, batteries has come down significantly, which gives us a parity of electric vehicles in terms of price, headline price, with the internal combustion engines that we've been living with for many, many years. What people often forget, though, is those stops to the petrol station all add up. And actually, when you're only charging at home at maybe 12, 13 pence per kilowatt, you're filling your car up in four pounds worth of energy to do the same that you would be doing for 15 or 20 pounds worth of petrol or diesel. So there is an economy over the total cost of ownership, which people don't often take into consideration when they're thinking about buying an electric vehicle. More so for fleets, uh, when you're running lots of electric vehicles or lots of vehicles and the, the benefits that come with owning an electric fleet. We talked earlier when we got into the car about how quiet it was. Well, that's a reduction in moving parts. So less moving parts means less maintenance. Less maintenance means less cost. So over the lifetime of owning a car, you've reduced your overheads significantly, whether you are a customer like me or you're running a fleet of hundreds of vans. I've learned a lot on this journey. Carl Bayliss got me excited about the EV driving experience. 
James Dixon helped me to see the bigger picture about the large-scale energy landscape of the future. The interviews with Rebecca, Jay and Roz highlighted the issues that I should consider. Then Dr Charlotte Duke helped me think differently about my behaviours and purchasing decisions. Pete Armstrong opened my eyes to the way that home energy management is going to link a lot of solutions together. And Ronnie Devere educated me about the intelligent algorithms that are going to make this whole landscape work. Finally, Amanda Barker reassured me that all of the new tech is going to be easy to use and manage. But now for the million dollar question. I'm going back to Carl Bayliss at Centrica. So come on, Carl, let's cut to the chase. Help me make a decision here. Is right now the correct time to be making the leap into electric vehicles for someone like me? Yeah, there's no better time than now for anybody to make the adoption into electric vehicles. I mean, as I said earlier, there's a, there's lots of new product that's coming to market. The incentives are still live. Um, you know, think about the, the mid to longer term and the total cost of ownership of having an electric vehicle, as well as the smiles per mile of driving the vehicle itself, really gives, um, the, the sooner you adopt it, the better. Well, yes, I'm sold. I am convinced that we're going to see a big uptake in electric vehicles and home energy management in the next few years, and I want to be a part of that. I hope you enjoyed Centrica's podcast, Power to the People on the Road. I'm John Tickle. Do share this podcast, and let's hope we're all on the road to an energy-efficient future. Must be off now. Bye-bye.